Welcome, everybody. I'm here with Brian Ashcraft. Uh, Brian, please uh, introduce yourself and let the viewers know who you are and a little bit about yourself. Uh, okay. Uh, my name is Brian Ashcraft, and um, I'm a senior writer at Kotaku.com. Uh, I'm also a columnist at the Japan Times, and I've written several books about uh, things, about, I guess, Japanese things or things related to Japan or things in Japan. Um, and I've been in Japan for, uh, coming, I guess, 18 years now. I came here in uh, 2001. And I live in Osaka. Oh, great. Thank you. Um, so I, I guess first what I want to say is what what was your initial uh, interest in Japan and what, what made you decide to make Japan your home? I, I you know, I've been interested in Japan since I was a little kid. Um, you know, when I was in maybe a kindergarten or first grade, a couple of students, uh, I think a st maybe one student uh, moved to, uh, you know, moved from Japan and came to our class. And so the teacher felt like that all the other kids in the cl class should learn about our new friend or our new friend's country. And so maybe we spent about a week or two learning about Japan. And then we went to a Japanese restaurant in Dallas called A Little Tokyo, It's Gone. But um, I just remember as, as a kid uh, that... I mean, it's the first time I'd ever had Japanese food. It was the first time I'd ever used chopsticks. And the the staff at the restaurant uh, took, like, uh, the, the paper that the chopsticks come in and kind of rolled it up and then took a rubber band to make kind of pinchers for us out of the chopsticks. And I just thought that was, I mean, I thought that was cool. And so uh, I, I remember, like, keeping those chopsticks. I mean, they're just wadi-washi. They were not, you know, fancy chopsticks or anything. But I, I, I kept them for a long time after that and just being like, wow, this is so cool. Um, and I just remember eating miso soup and thinking that I'd never had had anything that tasted quite liking that, quite like that and really, really liking uh, how it tasted. So from that point, I, you know, you know, Japan was on my radar. And then when I was a, a little older, also in grade school, there was another kid who had... Um, moved from Japan and uh, he invited me over to his house once. And um, I just remember uh, going over to his house and he had like a, like a, he had a Famicom and I'd never, I, you know, I had a Nintendo, but he had like a Famicom. And so I was just like, wow, like, what's this? This is like Nintendo, but it's like, it looks totally different. And, you know, the games are all in Japanese and the cartridges are different. And so I just was, it, it was a bunch of things like that as a kid. Um, and I just remember he and then I invited him over to my house. And when we went to go pick him up, his like parents, I guess, were just felt really happy or something that 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 he had made a friend. And when we went to go get them, I, I remember they got it. They got my parents like a small gift as a as a kind of a token of appreciation. And, you know, in Japan, that kind of like the gift giving culture is the norm. I mean, it's just how things are done here. Um, but. I just remember my parents being like, oh, wow, they didn't have to do this. And um, I, I just had a, a bunch of experiences like that as a kid. You know, another neighbor was a flight attendant and she flew DFW to Narita. So she was always bringing back Japanese snacks. So ever since I was a little kid, I was just, you know, aware of Japan. And you know, I found out that they played baseball, you know, <laughs> they play baseball in Japan. And there's all these things as like, 
just seemed like an interesting place for me. Um, and so when I finished school, the idea was like, oh, I'll just go for a little bit and I'll come back. Um, and because uh, when I was in college, I was interning in uh, the movie business in L.A. And so the idea was like, oh, you know, I'll go back and like do that some more, do something like that. And I just ended up staying and then I started getting like writing jobs and then I just ended up, you know, staying here. I mean, so it wasn't, it wasn't like a, I think the case, it's the case with a lot of people. I think that, that uh, maybe people kind of come here on a lark and then for uh, one reason or another, they end up staying. And sometimes people end up staying for a really long time. And I think that that's been like kind of uh, the case with myself, I know. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what happened to me. You know, I, I came here, you know, planning only about a year, year and a half or two and end up staying. I'm, I'm here going on 11 years now as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it happens, you know. <laughs> it does but, uh, happen. It does yeah. Happen. That, that's interesting. You say like you, you met this friend in you, you said uh, Dallas, right? You, you grew up in Dallas, Texas? Yeah, I grew up in yeah. Dallas. And this was in the... Uh, this is the eighties. Um, I guess right. this would have been the, the late eighties. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so, or I guess the first, the first student that came over, I guess, came over in kind of the mid to late eighties. And, um, and then, uh, the other kid, uh, who came over during, uh, I think maybe I was in fourth or fifth grade. Uh, so that would have been, uh, the late eighties. And, um, yeah, I mean, now, you know, in Dallas, there are a lot of a lot more Japanese people because of Toyota moving. Right. It's a North American headquarters there. But at that time, there weren't that many. Um, and so it was just it was, you know, it was interesting because uh, I would see lots of things that were very familiar, but then were, uh, you know, often kind of you know, had a, had kind of a different spin on, even like Coke cans. Like, I don't know if you remember, if, you, if you've seen Japanese Coke cans from the eighties, they were like yeah. these very like thin, cyndrical, tall cans. Right. And, right. And so, so I just remember as a kid, like, like, uh, you know, our friend who was a flight attendant should bring back, you know, Japanese and, you know, Sprite cans. Uh, for us, I mean, they weren't like empty cans, they had, you know, drinks in them, but, just getting them and like being like, wow, the cans are different. And then you, you drink the can, you drink the Coke or whatever. It'd be like, it tastes different. It doesn't taste, it probably tasted exactly, tasted exactly <laughs> the same, but it was just like, it was interesting because there were things that were, uh, very familiar. And then like, you know, like our neighbor had like a pachinko machine in her house. And so you'd go over and like, look at this pachinko machine and you'd be like, what the, what's this? Oh, you know? oh wow. Really? Like <laughs> yeah. they actually had the, they brought the pachinko machine over to America. Yeah, this was an old, this was just with the pegs. This wasn't, didn't have like an LED, like now they're, you know, like, okay. like you know, super high tech. This was like an old school. And so me That's and her interesting son, though. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, me, me and her son would like sit there and try to play it and be like, oh, I don't get this. Do you get it? No, we just like, I mean, so there was like, it was always around as a kid. And I think for a lot of kids in the eighties as well. Uh, that's that that's true with Japan. I think a lot of kids were exposed to Japan through video games or, you know, Voltron, like, you know, the Voltron toys that I had as a kid. I mean, they were right. from Japan, from Japan. You know, they were like brought in, you know, our neighbor would go to Japan and then buy the Voltron toys and bring them back and just like, wow, these are amazing. So um, there was just that kind of, you know, innate 
interest. And then, like, especially during probably the mid to late 90s, there was a lot of, like, kind of Japanese uh, pop music that became, yeah. for, like, a hot minute, kind of, uh, you know, there was, like, an article, I think, in, like, Rolling Stone about, like, you know, all the groups that were kind of coming out of Japan at that time. So there was a lot of things like that. Also, in the mid to late 90s, I was uh, when I was in college, I was interning at a, uh, a movie distribution company. Yeah. And the company was run, the name of the company was uh, Rolling Thunder Pictures. It doesn't exist anymore. But it was uh, the president of the company is Quentin Tarantino. Yes, um, yes. Uh, he didn't run the company. The guy who ran the company day to day was named uh, or his name Jerry Martinez. And he had worked with Quentin back at the video store. And he was like, he wasn't, is like super into Japan and uh, into like a lot of Japanese uh, movies from the 50s and 60s and early 70s. And um, so he was really into that. And uh, I was hired to work on a black exploitation book. Because okay. they were shooting, they were shooting Jackie Brown at the time, and so right, right, yeah. So, so like I would either go watch them shoot Jackie Brown, or kind of uh, I would go. There was a, a clothing designer who had this. He, he lived in um, uh, he lived in South Central LA, and I'd go down to his. He had this uh, really uh, amazing studio because he did. Uh, he uh, he and his wife did a lot of uh, very intricate uh, uh, tailoring or clothes, I guess, suit making, they made these be beautiful bespoke suits. Right. And uh, uh, a lot of um, like NBA players and famous actors would go there uh, because they just did fantastic work. And so sometimes I'd be in there like organizing posts. You know, he had, he, he had or still has like one of the largest uh, poster collections in the world of, uh, for black cinema. Yeah, and, yeah. And so, so I would go down to studio, and you, you know, I'd be in there like, you know, just blown away by like a huge one sheet he had of maybe, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, really amazing movie. And then you'd uh, walk out of the the kind of the area where all those posters were, and you'd see like these like really well known basketball players, uh, you know, right. talking to him. So it was like, wow, this is you know really interesting place. Um, and so. That that first summer, I organized all these posters and went through this his massive collection. He had a lot of the um, the publicity material that uh, the the movie studios like AIP uh, would uh, 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 or uh, I guess American Pictures International, not AIP, but um, they they would send um, to uh, you know to the to the movie theaters and tell them like this is how you should promote whatever movie. And right. uh, so right. I'd read through that, and that was really interesting. And I'd organize all the posters, and then on the other days I would go watch them shoot Jackie Brown. And then my boss, who was really into like Japanese movies, he would like say like Let's go. They're showing, you know, um, a bunch of Zatoichi movies uh, or Baby Cart from Hell movies at the American Cinematheque. Let's go watch them. And so we'd go watch all these Japanese movies, and. Um, that summer, uh, Fukusaku Kinji came, who directed Battle Royale, and this he hadn't directed Battle Royale yet. Right. They were, they were doing this big retrospective on him, and Sonny Chiba was there. Wow, and, wow, cool. 
you know, yeah. Fukuzawa is like, like, I mean, he's the guy that, that they brought in to replace Kurosawa on Toro, Toro, Toro. I mean, like, he was right. yeah, I yeah. Mean, like a great, great director. And it seemed like at that time, like, he's kind of at the end of his career. And they were just doing this retrospective. They were showing, like, battles without honor and humanity and, like, all this stuff. And so because of, um, you know, because of the, the company that I was interning at, like, you know, I got to, like, you know, meet these people and have dinner with them and talk to them. And so there's just all this, we'd go to these like special dinners. I think there's, I don't think it's called the Japan Foundation, but there's something like the Japan Foundation in Los Angeles mm -hmm. uh, and to like promote Japanese culture. So we'd go to dinners there. And I was like, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And then my boss that summer, that same summer came to Japan to try to get the rights to, uh, I think one of the newer Gamera movies that uh, Steven Seagal's daughter was in. And something else, I think he tried to get maybe Battles with that Honor Humanity, he tried to get the rights to those, but he couldn't, they couldn't get the theatrical distribution rights to those. But he said, he came back and he's like, he's like, wow, Japan's really great. And so I was like, okay, you know, I should go. And so I decided to go uh, and thought I was going to stay a little bit and just ended up, you know, forever. So, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. That, that's, that, that's a, that's a very um, interesting history there. So like you, you got how first how did you get into to writing and, and and two like how did you get into like working for um rolling thunder because like i i mean personally i'm i'm a huge tarantino fan myself and you know i i know a little bit about his um his interest in cinema and his background a bit and like that must have been like to be honest with you i mean I think Jackie Brown is actually one of his most underrated films. Like that's one of my favorite films of his is Jackie Brown. And that, that must've been really cool to be like there when, oh. when, when, when it's being filmed, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I tweeted yeah. this out recently. There was like, um, uh, uh, you know, Robert Forrester passed away recently. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm. um, Robert Forrester was like in medium cool medium. If you've never seen medium cool, please see me. Medium cool is amazing. It's just like, mm. it's like, it's part documentary. It's part, you know, uh, you know, fiction. It's putting actors in the middle of like real protest. It's it's incredible. So it's a it's an incredible movie. And the guy who sh uh, directed it was a really famous cinematographer named H Haxel Wexler. And it just looks fantastic. It's a really cool movie. And uh, you know, Robert Forster was this really great actor, but his career never quite popped, exploded the way it should have. Right. And, and um, you know, he 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 brought him in to do the Max Cherry role in the movie. And, um, you know, like I'm just some like dopey, like 18 or 19 year old kid who's there, like just to like organize movie posters and like answer the phone and transcribe interviews. You know, I'm, I'm like I'm. I'm not even like a PA on the movie, you know, I'm like right, nobody right. of nobody, you know? Yeah. You're just starting out, right? <laughs> I, it's like, I'm nobody. I'm just like, I'm just like, I'm like, basically I was just there, like just sitting there, like watching people getting in, the, you know, just trying not to get in the way. Right. And he was so friendly. He was yeah. so nice and yeah. he was thrilled to be there. And you could like, he would talk to you. And you could go up and ask him questions about movies he had been in. And he was just like, you know, when you go to, uh, they do the dailies at the end of the day. 
and they mm-hmm. just show they'd show the some of the footage that they shot and like when you would leave he would like come up to me and say like thanks so much for coming today it was great to see you you know what i mean and it was just like i'm just like some kid you know like you don't have to you know what i mean i'm not i you know i'm not i'm nobody he just was incredibly just an incredibly good guy right and, right and and uh he was thrilled that he was giving that chance and he was nice to everyone everyone liked him he was not you know he was just everyone on nice to everyone on the set um just just a super uh great great guy and so in the making of the jackie brown uh maybe in the dvd extra they have like a making of documentary and there's like there's a there's a scene where like quentin's like walking through the the delamo mall on the set and sam jackson's kind of milling around and and i'm like talking to robert forrester and i was just like there i am you know like you can like this kind of like geeky kid I was mm-hmm. with my boss and we're like talking to him. And I just like, like, I just felt, um, I felt really like, I was felt really happy that he was able to kind of uh, get this, uh, you know, s- second wind in his career and just ended up, you know, having a great uh, later career doing a lot of stuff. But I was like, when I heard that he passed away, I was like, oh, that's really sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Cause there was a lot of like really big stars on the set, you know, it's like, you know, Robert De Niro's kind of milling around and then, like I like I kind of felt like what am I going to say to Robert De Niro? You know, exactly. Like, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like it's like well, too it's just too intimidating. You know what I mean? Well, well too... you, you, I mean that that cast was was amazing. You had Robert De Niro, Sam Jackson, Michael Bridget, Keaton, yeah, Bridget, Bridget Fonda, Fonda, right? Yeah. Um, you, you know Robert Forrester's there, and then you have, you know, Chris Tucker, yeah, like all these people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that would have been just that would have blown my mind to be around all those people. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. With. Yeah, and so Robert Forrester was nice. Like Sam, Sam Jackson was nice. Uh, uh, Bridget Fonda was super nice. I mean, everybody was super nice. Uh, but you know, it's like I kind of felt like like you know, because you see, like I, I'd say De Niro is a great actor. Robert Forrester is a great actor. You know what I mean? Right. And, right. And De, De Niro is somebody whose career just kind of you know obviously took off, and he just he he was able to bring all these Ameri- amazing characters to life. And then you look at Robert Forrester and he's this brilliant actor and his career never quite uh was never i mean he obviously wasn't like de niro's but but like you know robert de niro was like the super professional guy and this great actor but it's like what would i say to robert de niro kind of thing and then bob forrester is you know walking around he's very friendly and you can talk to him and it's like you could ask him about media like i had a bunch of questions about medium cool and so he's just really nice so uh it was a good experience uh the experience the the thing that kind of like stayed with me uh, for that, that, you know, that experience was that uh, at the beginning of the summer, uh, you know, I'd the, so the reason, the, the, the way I got that job is I'd gone a year before and had worked at like an agency, like a talent mm-hmm. agency. Yeah. And, the, and they had, they basically handled some writers. Some of the writers there were like friends with Quentin um, and they, they, like, they, one of their biggest client, one of the biggest client was this guy named Mardik Martin. Mm-hmm. And, and he co-wrote, uh, Mean Streets with Scorsese. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and Raging Bull and stuff. Yeah. And so, so he was kind of at the end of his career and basically I think teaching at USC at that time. But sometimes you'd like call in and want to speak to the agent, the main agent there and be like, wow, it's Mardik Martin. He co-wrote Mean Streets. So, um, but, uh. It was through somebody in that company that kind of recommended me to uh, 
uh, Jerry, my boss, and they were like, this kid knows a lot about movies. And so, uh, you know, since Jerry worked at the video store with Quentin, that was kind of like, does he, you know? And so he called me up and like, was like, who are your five favorite directors? What are your 10 favorite movies like this? Yeah, you know, right. <laughs> and they like, they were like judging my taste. You know what I mean? It's like, Oh, I'm oh, not like, the, I'm a really big Preston Sturges fan. You know, I'd say stuff like that. And they'd be like, Oh, I like yeah. Preston, Sturges, you know, and like, you know, I really like Andre de Toth, you know, like, you know, or Sam Fuller is a great director, you know, these like super nerdy kind of film. Exactly. Movies. Like the ones that, you know, Average average people would be like, "Who's that?" Right? But yeah, yeah. yeah anyone who's into cinema, you you kind of you kind of know, know who these people are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and their big kind of bent was it like the whole point of that whole studio was it like, um, uh, uh, you know, like like a lot of like quote unquote like let's say film school students. I mean, this is kind of we're speaking in platitudes and stereotypes. This isn't entirely true, but this is what was kind of conveyed to me. You know, they, they might say that like uh, Fellini is a, is a great Italian director, but Fulci is not, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so they would, you know, th- that that distribution company would kind of look at Fulci as, this, you know, and he is, I mean, this fantastic, amazing uh, Italian director, this Italian filmmaker. So, um, you know, at the beginning of that summer, though, I had seen maybe like, you know, like I'd seen like Shaft, you know, I'd seen like one black, one or two black exploitation movies. Um, and so, uh Every day I would watch about, you know, at least one or two movies, black exploitation movies, like every day. Right. Um, and then I'd go, th- I'd be, you know, I'd be going through this this enormous catalog of like posters and all this like promotional material. So you're learning, you know, you're looking at the art, seeing all the taglines, kind of getting a feel of how artists visual, vis- you know, visualized or conceived of this uh, this moment in film history. And then you see how the studios are promoting it. Like they're like, you know, they would, they would, it was, it was ridiculous. Some of the, they'd say like, get mannequins and spread them all out over the lobby and put ketchup on like them. Like they'd been shot. You know what I mean? You'd be like, this is, I don't like, okay. You know? Um, but, uh, um, and then there were the interviews. So I'd be calling up people to set up interviews, you know, like, you know, the, the great, uh, a lot of the great stars and actors of the, this, you know, period, like Rudy Ray Moore, like Rudy Ray Moore is getting a big, um, uh, you know, he's because of the new Eddie Murphy movie, you know, he's, he's, um, it's a same shame that he's not here to see this, but you know, he's, 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 he's getting the, his legacy is getting a big boost because of the Eddie Murphy movie. But, uh, you know, like I'd call Rudy Ray Moore's people and set up like an interview with Rudy Ray Moore. And then he'd be, he'd like call me back. And it's like, like pick up the phone and it'd be like, you know, hi Brian, this is Rudy Ray Moore. You know, it's like, and I just right. remember, was, I was like, I was like, I was like, wow, this is like Dolomites on the phone. This is amazing, you know. That's um, yeah, it was that's nuts. Cra- that's yeah, crazy. Nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and then so some of the interviews, you know, uh, they'd kind of you know let me ask a few questions, but a lot of it, what I was doing was just transcribing it, so I was able to see like this is how you do. This is a good way to do an interview to get somebody talking a lot, you know what I right, mean? Right, right. So right. I, I, I was able to, by just by like transcribing, I could kind of see how, like just how the interview flew, you know, the flow of the interview and then kind of the points. And then it, it was just helpful, you know, to, to, to see, to really kind of get the nuts and bolts about that. And then, uh, you know, by the end of the summer, I, you know, done a lot of all this research, I'd seen all these movies and stuff. Um, you know, I started to have like an opinion about 
these movies and which yeah. directors I liked and which stars I liked and that kind of thing. And so it, it showed, and this is kind of something that still sticks with me today. It kind of showed me like, if you're going to do a, a book on something or you're going to research something, you really have to go all in. You can't right. kind of, and you know, if you're going to do a book on like tattoos, then you need to like, you know, I'm going to read, I'm going to read every single tattoo book that I can about Japanese tattooing, about, you know, uh, American style tattooing, like read every single thing I can read every interview I can. And then I'm going to read like another, like three or 400 more books right. about, about cultural things, you know, and just, it, you, you come up with this massive reading list of like, you know, like, you know, 800 books or something just silly, you know, and you go through them all and then you interview all these people and then you go to all these studios and you talk to all these people. And by the end of the process, you know it, you, you know what you're talking about, you know, yeah, and that, you, you know it, you know what I mean? And so that summer, you just go of, down the rabbit hole pretty much. You, you do. Know? And you, and you, yeah. and, and you, and you, uh, it becomes a, a question of like, how deep do you want to go? You know? And, and that, summer taught me that and that was just that was you know it's weird it's like because at that time i was like eight you know 18 19 years old independent cinema was like the big thing and i was like oh maybe i'll like you know uh go make movies or write movies or something like that uh, and like a friend of mine uh, at that time was a was an editor he edited he won an oscar after that but um yeah. just a really really great editor and i was like maybe i'd get like a gig with him or you know thinking like i could go somehow into production but uh, looking back, you know, in hindsight, it that summer taught me how to do research and taught me. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that just kind of carried. And that was the skill that was the skill that I learned that just transferred over into what I do now. And it, it, I didn't know that at the time. You know, I didn't know what I was, you know, that I'm doing now that I, you know, that I would end up doing that. But it just right. ended up it it ended up kind of just sliding over. And, you know, I was able to see a book made, how a book was put together, like all yeah, these kind of yeah. all these kind of skills that, you know, I thought I was going there to learn how to do movie stuff. And I ended up learning how to do book stuff. So it, it worked out in a really, really uh, good way. You know, that, that, that's fascinating. That, that that's really cool. Like um, I, I that's really, really fascinating that you, you were able to kind of get into that world you know and um just the 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 whole uh, independent film scene you know and and, and research that no no yeah. you say that um you you dealt a lot with the uh, the black exploitation films right did you ever um, meet uh sid haig at all uh sid haig was on jackie brown on the set i wasn't right. there that I, I wasn't like you know i'm like you know i like spider baby i'm like a big Sid Haig fan, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, um, uh, but uh, yeah, like no, I didn't meet. I never met Sid Haig, but he was there okay. on the set. Uh, okay. I, I would have loved to have met him, but you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, um, He's another one that that unfortunately passed this year too. So yeah, yeah. I did yeah. not get to meet him, but he was, you know, like what was the name of? He did this one movie. Oh, what's the name of it? Oh, let me. See, he he played a lot of like heavies in the black exploitation genre back in the yeah 70s. yeah but before yeah but before that he did a movie uh before this is this movie was nuts um that it's like they're it's like a car racing movie and right the, they were like going around in a figure eight 
and like they would like smash into each other in the 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 name the middle of the <laughs> it, was, it was like right. what oh what, what year did the movie come out uh, this is like the early 60s or the early 60s right um yeah, yeah i forget yeah. the name <laughs> but i just yeah, remember but, seeing it it was like, like pit stop or um, pit stop yeah yeah i think it was pit that's stop. it yeah, 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 yeah. He he did he did a lot of uh, films like that in in the seventies, yeah, yeah. Or, or in the sixties, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean that that would have been cool if uh, he he was he was someone that I, I'd always wanted to uh, to meet someday, you know. It was like the the person that I I was able to meet the the person I was like, wow, this guy you know is just a like a great director was Jack Hill. Yeah. Yeah. And he had a string of like, like these just like he did like all these exploitation movies and he just did them like they're just so incredibly well made and well directed and just, uh, uh, you know, he was operating at this this I think this really uh, high level. And I think that for him, he probably looked at like folks like Bogdanovich who started out doing exploitation movies, but then were able to make the la- the leap or even Scorsese as well the leap into like kind of mainstream cinema and he never did that. You know what I mean? So, yeah. um, yeah. And it's just weird how like, you know, if you know, you study a lot of these, these great actors and these great directors and you study their careers. And it's like, if they, if, you know, for whatever reason, they weren't able to get that one project to kind of push them in an entirely different direction. Um, and so some, that was something I, I, you know, I've, that I thought was like fascinating, you know? Um, so it, it was just, it was an interesting time. It was a great time in American cinema. Yeah. Uh, sure um, was. Yeah. I just remember like, like the, the thing that kind of just really just resonated with me, uh, was that take somebody like, you know, Bogdanovich Bogdanovich knows, uh, so much about American cinema. He was friends with, uh, you know, John Ford and like knew all these, old directors and stuff and interviewed them extensively and like Tarantino can match him, you know, pound for pound on American cinema. Now he didn't, he wasn't friends with John Ford, so he can't like, you know, say, you know, what it was like hanging out with John Ford, but uh, you know, he, he knows as much and, and it's just incredibly in depth on, on the films, like all the way up and down kind of the credit list, you know, he knows who everyone is. Plus he knows, all the American exploitation movies, all the Italian, you know, the, the Italian horror movie, like all these other genres as well. He knows equally as deep. And uh, that was the thing that, you know, you hear people say that and then you see him in action just kind of rattling stuff off. And you're just like, I have like, I don't know how he keeps it all in his head. I mean, it's just the, the, uh, the right. amount of even like people like people that I, you know, I knew at that time that really knew cinema. And I would be blown away by them. They ended up. They ultimately would be blown away by like all the stuff that he knew. You know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was. Uh, it was an interesting time. Yeah. It's. It's always cool to meet. Uh, to meet people that just have that library of knowledge about things like that. You know. Yeah. 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 It's one. It's one of those things. He's. He is doing exactly what he should be doing. He should not be doing anything else, kind of thing. You know. <laughs> right. Right, right. I don't. Th- I don't know what else he could. Well, he probably could be like an archivist or a historian or something like that. Without a doubt. But like he, he found the right field at least. You know. Exactly. <laughs> so. So um. So a- after you after you left that, how how did you 
make the decision to move to Japan and and just sort of continue on? Like, uh, what what led you to first move there and then like sort of decide? Well, I'm just gonna kind of stay here and see how it goes. So, like that whole summer, there was like all that stuff, and so I was like, I should go. And so I decided I'd just go for a little bit. And then like the plan was kind of to come back. And then so I ended up staying and then, you know, three months turned into six months and, you know, six months turned into, uh, you know, it just continued. And then like, uh, then I met, uh, I met my wife. Um, and then I was like, you know, she's, she seems pretty cool. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so then we got married and, uh, around that, then that same time, a, uh, a friend of mine from Dallas, from Dallas, he knew somebody that he went to UT with who was, uh, an assistant editor at Wired Magazine. Okay. And, And they were like looking for a stringer for stories. And so he said, like, if you ever have any kind of like, you know, tech related stories, send this guy an email. So I was watching like some super late, you know, local Osaka television and they were introducing a keyboard for computers that was shaped like a cell phone. And this was for teenagers who were so used to typing on their phone that they were unable to use keyboards. Wow. This, okay. was, this was a real, this was a real product. This was sold at Yodabashi camp. You know, this is a real product. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, I, yeah. was like <laughs> I was like, wow, this is interesting. It was like so, what? Uh, early two thousands, right? Yeah. Oh, three. This is yeah, yeah. Oh, So I sent him uh, a message and they were like, Oh, this is interesting. You wanna, do you want to write, you know, 120, 150 words on this? And I said, all right. <laughs> and so uh, I didn't have a computer at the time. So I actually wrote that whole article out on my phone, um, like an old, like, you know, clam. And it wasn't even a clamshell, I don't think. It, it was like a kind of a brick phone, whatever. And I typed that out and sent it in. And then they asked me if I wanted to write something else. And I just kept sending them ideas like every month. And, you know, slowly but surely i was doing an article almost every month and they were all like you know 150 200 300 words and then those articles turned into 500 or 800 words and then i started getting jobs at um other magazines mm-hmm. other Condé Nast, and i was getting i got a contract at, at wired and i became like a contributing editor there and i became a contributing editor at other magazines as well and no, um, no, no, was this wired.com wired J- uh, Japan wi- right. wired magazine. This was okay. The print. Okay. There now I think there's, you know, at that time there was, uh, a, 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 a much, uh, kind of more, I don't I, I think the magazine, obviously the magazine and .com have different editor in chiefs. Right. But, uh, uh, but the print was kind of like, I mean, then like print was very much, uh, kind of it's still very much its own world right yeah it was yeah Mm -hmm. and and this is before blogs took off uh before online media took off so i mean i remember like i do not for wired but for another magazine i do like tech reviews and i they'd say like okay go get this camera 
and I'd call up the company and say, we need this camera to review it. The camera, the company would say, well, we're not going to send you the camera. You know, the camera is, you know, expensive or it's hard to get or whatever. And then I'd email my editor and he would go, oh, just buy it. <laughs> and then keep it. You know what I mean? In case you want to write about it again or something like that. So, like, it was a very different time. They had, like, you know, you could make good money. I mean, I don't know what you can make now writing for print magazines, to be honest, because I, right. I don't. I've done well, some. I, I've done yeah. some stuff like recently, but in, in the paychecks were good. But like at that time, it was like you could. They were expensing a lot of stuff that I don't know if they would expense now. Kind of. It was a different time. Exactly. Yeah, back back then, you know, in order to make kind of a name for yourself, you kind of just had to get the product yourself, review it, and then say, "Here's my review." Right? You know, they wouldn't just freely say hey we want you to re- you know um you you request to review the product and they just send it to you nowadays it's um that's very common you know for youtube channels or whatever to to get free f- free products to review just to sort of advertise the product you know uh no so they would usually yeah. companies often send out review units you know what i mean yeah. like yeah. like let's say you know you want to review a television or something like that, you know, they'll send you the like kind of the review unit that's dedicated for the press. You know yeah. what I mean? And they'll mm-hmm. they'll they'll then the press can, you know, this is I, I don't know how online works. I don't know how YouTube works. I, this is just I'm just talking about like talking about like oh four, oh five, oh six, like okay. print, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they they'd have the kind of like like the and the review units and then after you review it, then you send it back to the company. You know what I mean? And so sometimes because it was an American magazine and the American magazine wanted to review Japan only products. The Japanese, there was a much, there was a big wall between, you know, a lot of these big Japanese companies between uh, the U S side and the Japanese side. Right. And so if, if you contacted the Japanese side and say, we want to review X, Y, or Z, they would say, well, that product isn't scheduled for release in, in the United States. So we can't, let you we can't send you a review unit and you would say like well i'm based in japan the point of the article is to review this and we're talking how it's japan only this is the point of the article nobody can buy it but we just want to like explain what it's like or its features or blah 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 and and more often than not they just say like no you know it's just sorry i mean i think maybe now it's different there's probably less of this um uh you know i think there's a lot more simultaneous global launches on stuff Especially yeah. like uh, a lot of tech stuff, but then it was different. I mean, it would be like cell phones or digital cameras or just kind of stuff like that. And so, uh, you know, I'd say to the publication, as you know, this wasn't Wired. This was another publication. I'd say to them, and they'd say, "Oh, you can just get it and expense it, and you know, review it that way, or um, uh, and then just keep it. You know what I mean? Keep it and then review it later, or send it to us. Sometimes they'd want to see it or something like that." Um, right. so that's just how it was at that time. You know, I don't know what it's like now, but that's what it was like at that time. Okay. Um, so it was just like building up like a series of clips, you know, like you're, you're doing like, uh, you know, you know, I was writing about all sorts of stuff. I wrote about like an article about Japanese dog houses. I wrote an article about Horiemon, who was, you know, he's still this famous IT guy, but at that right. time, right, right. Yeah, because because so, that time he was he he kind of he did a what was it a live live door was yeah that, yeah yeah and then he had some sort of a scandal right 
yeah, he went to prison. So I interviewed him yeah. before, before that. Oh, really? really? Yeah. You, you have interviewed him? Okay, because I yeah. read a few of his books, and I, I enjoy his writing, but uh, yeah. he's uh, He was pretty interesting. So uh, yeah, I interviewed him like kind of when he was at the height of his, you know, I went to like Onomichi to see him run for office, and I was, mm-hmm. I was there on the last day where he lost, and so he's like just building up like a series of clips, and then uh, you know then I started doing a couple features for them and features for other people, and then around that time, another editor at Wired then recommended me to you know what was then Gawker Media, which is, doesn't exist anymore, yeah. and I I got the job at uh, Kotaku, and so I started doing that in '05, yep. Uh, yep, and and then I just it just 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 like kind of you know. At that time, like Kotaku was not, now it's, you know, it's a really big site and we have millions and millions of readers, but at that time it wasn't. So it was just really just grinding, like just grinding out articles, uh, you know, every day. And uh, I think mm-hmm. at that time, 05, 06, 07, 08, people were still trying to kind of figure out uh, how to do it, you know, how to get it, how to get it right. And so, um, right. Uh, that, that was, that was sort of like the, um, the genesis of the uh, of of the video game journalism thing, like you know, like sites like IGN had been around for for a few years at that point, but but uh, mid two thousands was sort of when you know that's when like Xbox and and PS two and you know these these systems were just really taking off, you know, and like that was when video game journalism was just starting starting to explode, right? Um, yeah, I mean, there was a, there's a bunch of, I mean, there was like one up and there's all these great magazines and stuff mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, but like kind of the digital, like the, I mean, like we would like now it's like people kind of forget this, but if there was like a, like, for example, I went to, uh, the first, they had a, uh, Konami had a, a press conference when they were showing off the first gameplay footage of, uh, Metal Gear Solid, uh, four. And yeah. so, and so. Yeah. And so I, you know, I took the train to, I think it was in Rapongi, and like, it was in a movie theater. I just remember we went into this like huge movie theater and Kojima's on stage and there's some guy playing through it and they're just playing it. And I don't, it wasn't like streamed anywhere. They were just like playing it for like people. <laughs> so right. like you would like live blog that. Do you see what I mean? So it yeah. was like, like all these kind of like, you know, we'd go, you'd have to go to these press conferences and because it wasn't like hooked up. Now it's like, you know, just watch it on YouTube and everybody can see it. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Streaming so, wasn't really a big platform then. So, yeah, I mean, they just didn't have, you know, it, it just wasn't, you know, like I remember I went to, uh, I was at one press conference and some, somebody uh, I knew who worked at uh, Gizmodo mm-hmm. had, a, had a camera, like a live streaming camera on his head. Yeah. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, he's like, this is for Justin TV. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Justin TV. Yeah. And I was like, I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm streaming this. It's all live now. And right. I just remember it, like seeing them I'm like, wow. Okay. You know, I mean, that's Twitch now, you know, <laughs> that became Twitch, you know? Um, uh, yeah, so, much. yeah. Twitch. Yeah. Mm. So it was, it was all, I mean, it, you know, it was, this was before, like, you know, like really before like Twitter and social media. So it was just a really different time, but it was an interesting time to, to get started. And, and it was interesting to see, 
you know, just to, I mean, it's just interesting. It was interesting to, to see it, to go from the PS2 to the PS3, you know, and obviously, uh, and, and, you know, the, the Xbox, Xbox 360, and just to be there, you know, see right. the Wii. So it was, a, it was a really great time. So yeah, that was, um, uh, you know, that's how I uh, got that job. And so I just, you know, you know, we, everybody at the site and everybody now, like, you know, works, worked really hard and still works very hard. So um, it was interesting. It was really, really interesting. And um, uh, it was a, you know, it's, it's been a great, it's been great to see how all these things have changed. And uh, <laughs> now if you look at it, like you think about it, you look at stuff from like 05 or 06. Yeah. Yes. I think it's like uh, a billion years ago, you know. So it it, it is, you know, like you, you look at game. I you know, I I was looking at um, game footage from even 15 years ago, which is yeah. around that time, and yeah. you know, s- with mods and everything, things look somewhat. I wouldn't say similar, but you know, resolution is obviously higher. But right. you know, like games have changed just so much just in the last 10 years that it's just um it, it, it it's it's phenomenal at, at at the at the rate that they're going you know yeah it yeah. It, it really is um and you just think about what's the next 15 years going to be like and it's oh exactly yeah and uh yeah so it's it's been great it's been great to see it's been i mean it's been great to see uh um you know just it's it's been really interesting it's it's a, i think you know this period uh you know the last 15 20 25 years in, in in uh uh you know video game history is just you know incredibly important and uh it's been interesting to to you know interview a lot of these people who make the games and just kind of see you know kind of uh see how things have changed and evolved and uh you know i just i i, I honestly cannot really imagine what the next you know i don't want you know to to be fair to video games i don't want to imagine you know what the next 15 years you know are like because i couldn't imagine that we'd go this far in the past you know in, in the last 15 years so um, exactly right yeah it's so I'm just um, excited you know yeah it, it is exciting and you know just seeing some some of the things that are just coming out in the next year or couple of years is 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 really fascinating to me um it, I, I mean I've, I, when, when last time I went back to the states, I I, uh, I was able to experience like full immersion VR arcade style things like the Void and and uh, arcade things where you interact with your friends in right. a VR setting. And th- I, this is honestly, you know, this is this is the future of gaming I think is, is that this real life interactive VR experience, you know, I, I think that's the future of arcades. And so, yeah. um, it, you know, I read something recently that said, you know, was talking about how, you know, how the number of arcades in Japan have just how they've fallen in the past several decades. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, uh, the thing that arcades have always done in Japan is that they've always tried to offer, an experience that you can't get at home. And, right. and I think that especially in Japan, uh, you know, I think that even if your home or your apartment is still on the large side or your living room is still on the large side, it's still usually not like the best place to do VR, you know? Exactly. Yes. Yes. That, that is absolutely right. <laughs> um, and then, then usually in Japan, you know, we, we just have one television <laughs> in the house. So, 
you know, there, there's, there's kind of that as well. Like, you know, maybe people want to, um, you know, uh, I mean, it just depends, you know, so, um, or the space or, or, or whatever. So, um, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that, that anyway, like, so, so like, for example, like when, when, uh, uh, you know, they had like motion, you know, games with like motion in it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think that I always kind of felt like that that was like a really interesting, um, you know, kind of idea as well. But then, like for home use, you know, it's still not ex- exactly the the most ideal place. You know what I mean? So right. uh, um, I think that uh, you know arca- arcades in Japan, any way that they can kind of um, offer a different experience uh, or offer something that you can't get at home, uh, that's kind of. And so in the past, like so, for example, uh, you know, in the past, I think what in the past ten years, like. People in Japan, the TVs that they would have at home, like the one TV that they have at home, wouldn't maybe wasn't as high def as some of the the the, the monitors and arcades. Right. So then that became like kind of like, do you want to play the new Tekken fighter? Okay. Well, you know, you could play it at home on your like one television, and it might not, you know, be might not might, it might not be as high def as the one the the monitor in the arcade. Or, um, you know, even before that, like, you know, kind of the, the shooters, like a lot of the kind of the, the bullet hell shooters, like, you know, um, you can't, I mean, I guess you could flip your TV at home, but you know what I mean? Like the, 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 the screens are kind of, you know, turned on their side. So it, it's just, yeah. a, it's kind of a different, it offers you a different experience than what you would think you could get at home. Um, and then even before that, you know, when they had, uh, the graphics were just better in arcades. So there's just been this long history of, um, uh, you know, of, of arcades trying to offer something different, you know, whether it's, that's like yeah. a, a, del- a deluxe cabinet, a big cabinet of, you feel like you're, you know, driving a car or, you know, flying a plane or whatever. Um, and so when I think about like now, how, you know, when you look at the Japanese living room and you have the single screen, and then let's what's something that you could offer people, you know, outside, you know, um, you know, people could play, uh, you know, VR at home, uh, you know, they can obviously play on a headset. So, you know, they can, you know, kind of detach from the screen or whatever, but uh, it, it's, it still doesn't quite like, it's not the same as, for example, if you're playing a VR multiplayer game, in a large room mm. where you have staff monitoring to make sure nobody like gets hurt or fall. You know what I mean? Uh, that kind of arcade experience or that kind of, well, it's not so much art, but that kind of experience is something that you can't get at home. And so yeah. when I look, when I look at like Japanese arcades, you, know, you see kind of like Namco Bandai really kind of moving this direction and, and opening arcades that are offering this experience. And I think that for the arcades that remain, that kind of sees, seems to be like a way forward, you know? Right. Um, now, could you, I mean, you, you, you say this, so, you know, I, I've only experienced, you know, arcades like um, the void in, in like, I know Dallas has one right. that I experienced recently. And then I, I was in Denver and I experienced a, a VR arcade. Are, are, are these starting to pop up in Japan as well? Like, vr specific arcades um, yeah like so in, yeah not yeah. yeah namkai 
not not pipe bomb those like open uh bend eyes like uh opening them and stuff like that so there is it's starting to you know uh um you know it's it's interesting like like uh you know like uh maybe about a decade plus ago mm-hmm. um like like namco had would have like in its big the namco game centers would have like areas they'd have like like miniature almost like haunted houses or like right. stuff where it's like it's kind of like a game there's like a game element of it but it's still kind of like this like haunted house carnival attraction kind of thing uh mm-hmm. this kind of where that it, it's the same kind of idea in a way where they're right. like you you can't do this at home somebody might be willing to pay six bucks five bucks whatever to experience this they might be on a date and then they can kind of you know like they'll want to do this with if they're on a date or with friends or with whatever uh so that's what we kind of need to focus on so vr seems like a much you know like you know i have uh three kids um Mm -hmm. you know uh, to be honest like a lot of vr stuff at home like i'm worried that like you know kids gonna like start like trying to like screw around with me while i'm playing it just to you know what i mean (laughs) but because you know it's like you know what's daddy doing with that headset on kind of thing you know so um uh but if you're like in a kind of an in an environment that um is conducive i mean obviously live by yourself it doesn't matter but um but uh yeah so i think that i, I just feel like that seems like a way forward it seemed like before kind of the the way a lot of arcades were going is like a lot of the kind of the near field field communication games the card games uh right. like the soccer games and stuff like that um or you know like idol master and these other kind of uh you know card based games that was kind of like they were saying like this is kind of what we should be doing uh and i think it just it's all on the same it's always the same kind of like what can we offer that they can't do at home and then they just do it so uh right. vr vr just seems the the latest evolution of that so yeah yeah so what what would you say is your console home console of choice which one do you do you, do your kids play? Which one do you play? Or are they the same? Or are they different? Uh, I mean, I I think well, the last generation I played a lot of X, Xbox 360. Right. Um, and this one is just because you know I live in Japan. It's just it's yeah. just it's just harder to get Xbox One stuff. You know, just yes, it, yes, it, it, is. <laughs> it just it just is. You know. Yeah. Uh, so it just ends up being PS4 stuff. Yeah. Or is or is the Switch? You know, like my my middle son is like absolutely obsessed with like Fortnite, so yeah um uh he plays a lot of that play a lot of mario stuff like that um but yeah i think that the, that's kind of the the i think probably this generation that's pretty much everyone's well unless you're really into pc gaming or um you know you have a really nice you know if you have a good pc setup is that kind of that, that like one two punch of the ps4 and the switch mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just mm-hmm. the way it kind of next generation i mean the previous generation it was different this is how it is this generation you know um, who knows how it's going to kind of shake out the next one. So that's kind of right. Uh, uh, where I am now. Right. Right. Cool. Cool. So, um, Brian, you, you said you have a, uh, you, you've written a few books, right? Uh, you have a new book coming out soon, right? Yeah. So, uh, well, last year I did a book on, uh, Japanese whiskey. Okay. So, uh, you know, visited a whole bunch of distilleries and interviewed a whole bunch of people. And uh, I think the, you know, the, the thing that's 
really interesting about Japanese whiskey is that, um, you know, it's kind of like, what is Japanese about it? You know, uh, yeah. uh, it's the, the, the process, the basic process is, you know, the, basically the, you know, the Scotch whiskey style, uh, the mass, the, the vast majority of grain that's used to make Japanese whiskey is imported. Uh, you know, they don't use much, uh, domestic grain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the casks are going to end up coming obviously from, from, uh, Europe or the United States. And, uh, so then you kind of are left with them. What's Japanese about it? How is this Japanese? Um, and so that was a really interesting, I mean, it was, it was really, really interesting. It was really interesting to, uh, I mean, travel all around to interview all these people, um, interview a lot of people that, uh, had never been interviewed before, you know, people that, you know, like, for example, when you visit the Yamazaki distillery, um, Mm -hmm. there's a, there's a famous photo that you'll see a lot in this, the distillery. It shows kind of like a, a lake and you see kind of a, a lake in the, the foreground and then you see the distillery. And uh, when you go on the tour of the Yamazaki distillery, they take you into the, the maturation warehouse and you kind of come out and there's a little pond there. It's a very small pond and uh, that's kind of like the end of the, the, the tour of the distillery. And uh, that pond is completely man-made. There's, mm, a, mm. there's a there's a faucet not a faucet but there's like water piped in there and it's not a match i mean it doesn't exist there they created that you know right and so so you kind of think like but before there was like a lake there was like a larger lake and then they had the older i mean obviously they rebuilt the dis, they built the the distillery now that they have is, is like a newer building than that's in the photo and you're like well then you know what why is there this pond there and what is that so we found uh, this woman who's, um, she's, uh, you know, she's, I think she's in her early eighties now. Um, and, uh, she grew up on that other side of that pond where that fake pond is, is right now. That's where her house was. Wow. Okay. And, and her family then sold that land to Suntory. Suntory bought it. Mm. They, they built a, a larger maturation warehouse and then they built that little tiny, fake pond that you see and and her family was living in osaka city during the war and uh her her family was like well you know this is you know we could get bombed in osaka city let's move out to the countryside you know there were people that moved out of the city then you know if their family lived in rural areas they'd move in with their relatives and they built a house there in their house right across the way, you know, when she stepped out of her house in the morning and looked across this, this you know, this small pond, there right. was this, there was, the, there was the Yamazaki distillery. And, uh, she said that she said that it was like a big kind of like, you know, almost like a cultural shock to her because she said they went in this like rural area and people were in kind of like these like straw sandals there. And she's like, I never wore that in Osaka city, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, I think then her family realized that that distillery had then been co-opted into the war effort. Right. So 
that distillery could be bombed mm. because, because they were making, they were, it became a war factory. You know, they were making, you know, some, you know, some, some of it, you know, they're making a percentage of, of alcohol for soldiers, but you know, you could get some of it like the, the alcohols then could be used for other uh, things, part of the war effort. And she said that she just remembered like seeing like, you know, uh, bombers flying overhead and like thinking like, wow, this was like a really bad decision. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, so it was like when you go to the Yamazaki distillery, you kind of go on a tour and they have, they have, you know, the, their version of the history of the distillery. And what, what I really wanted to do was kind of like, you know, go deeper, like, like, like yeah. re- really kind of uncover stuff that had never been written about, um, you know, talk about, um, talk about Japanese whiskey in a way that I hadn't seen written about. It. So that was like a, you know, multi-year project and went all over the place. We, you know, um, and it was really, really interesting and really tried to pick down like, what is Japanese about Japanese whiskey? And then the latest one has been a book on sake. Okay. Uh, and so that's been another like multi-year project. Um, I've, I've, I've visited a lot of, I mean, a lot of sake breweries. <laughs> I mean, like not a few, I mean a lot, like where it's like, a, you know, it's like, wow, this is a lot. Um, and so, yeah, it's been kind of the same thing. Just try to do something interesting, try to, you know, add to the conversation. And so that's, that's what I've been working on for the past, you know, several years. So that's been like, going all I've, I've been near you you know i've been where, where your base i've been up there right. i've been all yeah. all over the place um yeah. so uh yeah that's been a really interesting project as well um and when that that's done then i'll you know write something probably on a totally different subject matter but uh uh for me it's i just it's really important to kind of look at japan from different angles yeah yeah that that's that's a that's very interesting um that that you're you're writing about these topics that not a lot of people really consider when they think of Japan, you know. So, that, well, sake. I hope they uh, sake well, is Japanese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, obviously so. sake. But like whiskey, <laughs> yeah. that that was one thing. You know, when I moved here, that um, I, I came to realize that wow, Japan actually has a really good whiskey culture, and you know, they they have some really, really, really decent whiskey here. So that that was a surprise, to be honest, when when I first moved here. So. Yeah, when you moved here, it was a great time to buy a lot of that whiskey because now it's just it's it's the, yeah. the value yeah. on it is just. I, I I've seen bottles at the I I've, I've seen bottles of whiskey run from over a thousand dollars, you know, U.S. You know, so it's. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, I hear it's it's just been going up since you know in the past ten years or so when um, a lot more people have been catching on to it, so. You know, it's so funny. It's so if you know you're doing a book on, on whiskey, you become kind of acclimated to like, let's say you need to go taste like you know, you know Hibiki Thirty or something like that. So, right. You know, something that's expensive, and so you get at like, okay, this is how much it's going to cost. Blah, blah blah blah. Or you know, Nika, you know the Nika like forty. You know, like these like really uh, expensive. Uh, whiskeys, you know what I mean? You know, Yamazaki right. 25, whatever. Um, right. That, um, and then when you get to like, like Nihonshu, it's like the stuff that's expensive. I mean, it's still expensive, but like compared to like, like 
the expensive like whiskey. Right. If you're looking at it from from just looking at at like really expensive like like whiskey, suddenly everything's like, wow, this isn't that expensive. Or like I was at like I was up in um, you know I was up in like uh, Shiga the the other day, mm-hmm. and, and um, so I, I you know going to this brewery and um, you know talking to the guy that owns it, and he's also the the toji there, and. He's like, he's like, yeah, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't hire any more breweries or brewers to come. So it's like now, like me and my wife and my son are doing. It. So just the three of them are doing it. Right, right. Mm. And like, like, so we go to the brewery and they're doing these like super labor intensive steps during the brewing process. Mm. And you're looking at something that's completely, you know, 100%, 100% domestic product. And so if you think about like how much you know, you know, they're, they're not, you know, none of the, 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 the rice or any of this, it's, it's all, you know, it's all domestic. Everything is domestic. They're, it's just, they're doing this, like some of the steps they were doing in the process. I was like, I was like, wow, this is, you know, you guys are, you know, y'all are just, <laughs> this is really exhausting, you know, especially exactly. for like three of them. And then it's like, it's like, okay, here, you know, you can get a bottle, you know, 720 milliliter bottle for 1,300 yen. And you just, you're just like, what? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. What? You know what I mean? You just, you kind of, uh, it's astounding. It is astounding. I mean, you can, it, the fact that every single Japanese person isn't drinking sake, that they're drinking chuhai, uh, which is right. made, which mm. is, which is, it's industrial alcohol with with sugar and you know flavoring and exactly yeah and they're drinking that instead of this will never cease to blow my mind i mean it's just like i just can't even you know i i just i cannot process that you know and and you know i i i know you know i'm i've seen how chuhai is made i know how it's you know i'm i in it's like why, why, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you drink this? You know what I mean? I just don't get it. Um, yeah, it it's it's um, yeah, it's one of those industries where, you know, it's yeah, it's cheap to buy for a reason, you know, because it's like you said, it's industrially made, but it's that it's that uh, artisan style of uh, of uh, nihonshu sake or um, or whiskey that 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 really is the um, the the best that you can get here, you know? So well, I've, I even like mass produced stuff. Mm. Like if it's, if it's like, you know, I mean, I will put sushi that's kind of the, the table sake. I mean, it's just like, even that you'll go to like, you'll, you'll, you'll look at what they're putting in it, you know? Um, and it's like, and then you kind of look at what's being put into like can chuhai and you're like, I'd still rather have the tissue. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and yeah. I, I think it, you know, tastes better. And even like, you know, you'll like you'll go into some of these like really big uh, breweries, and they're they're making a lot of you know uh, table socket, and even then it has more kind of hands-on stuff, right? Than when they're making too high. I mean, it's literally like they're they have these run it up these huge column stills. They're getting this super pure, uh, you know, super pure alcohol, and then it's just like and. The, that original alcohol is being, you know, imported from other countries, 
Mm-hmm. They want to they want it to get they want to get it as cheap as possible. And right. They, purif- they purify it here and they get it really clean. You know, they get it really clean and really pure and a high percentage of alcohol. I just I don't get it. Like <laughs> I really don't get it. Um, but for some, I think it's you know I really think that it's the the food culture in this country in the past. 35, 40 years has really, really changed. And so people want something that's very light and uh, something that is very sweet or has a kind of a, a punch and a taste. And then we'll go with, you know, like karage or, you know, kind of something a bit more fried food um, that's easy to drink with that. And that's why that's why they like it. I get it, you know, but it's just kind of yeah. like, I just when you really kind of get into the process of how it's made and stuff like that, it's just like, I can't believe it. And I can't, you can, you know, you can go to all these, like, and this isn't like this brewery isn't kind of an anomaly, you know, where you are, same thing. You can get in your car, probably drive 15, 20 minutes and find some place like that. It's doing amazing stuff. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's breweries in, you know, uh, Nasu and and even here in uh, Utsunomiya where I live that, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can just go to and just get, you can just get it, you know? So it's the, you're right. Yeah. It's like 13 bucks or 15 bucks. And you're like, exactly. Mm -hmm. "Ah, This is incredible. So, and even if you want to get like stuff that's made, you know, from a big, you know, big brewery, even that still, I recommend that in a second over, uh, you know, the kind of the sugary alcohol that seems to be, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, enjoyed by (laughs) so many people today, but right. So, So, where can people um, find these uh, these books that you've written? Oh, they're all on Amazon. The, okay. I haven't I haven't officially announced uh, I don't know uh, the sake book, but I'll probably put up okay. you know uh, stuff on that uh, Twitter at some point in the future. But yeah, they're all on Amazon. There's you know I did a book on arcades. I did a book on schoolgirl culture. I did a book on cosplay. I did a book on tattoos and uh, whiskey and you know sake and then. The next one will be different, and the one after that will be different, and one after that will be different. So, um, well, good, good. That 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 that's awesome that you 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 cover so many aspects of of culture here in Japan that you know not a lot of people probably think about. You know, like um, tattoos, yes, um, you know, arcades. That those are things that people are interested in. But you know, you you also focus on things like uh, the alcohol. You know, like. Uh, Nihonshu, the sake and, and, and whiskey and things. So um, th- those can be found on on Amazon, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, we'll include links to those in the uh, in the show notes. And um, what what about uh, where can people find you online as well? Uh, Twitter, I guess. I mean, I do okay. Twitter, Instagram uh, uh, at Brian underscore Ashcraft. I think for both. Um, and write on Kotaku every day. So if you like that site, please read that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's been, you know, I've, I'm sure you feel the same way. You know, I've, I've been here, uh, you know, yeah, a chunk of my life now. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I feel like there's some things that I have a, a, a better handle on, but there's some things that I still don't, you know, and I, I feel like that the rest of my life is that, you know, is, is, and I don't think it'll ever, I think, I think if you're ever in a situation where you kind of feel like I understand a hundred percent about this, uh, I think you're kind of your, your, your motivation to learn more, uh, drops. I think you become, 
you know, I think you become kind of complacent. And so right. I think, I think living in Japan, I, you know, I don't think you, I don't, I don't think it's possible, possible to feel. There's always something that you feel like you should study harder or learn more about, or, um, you know, uh, um, you know, stuff that you didn't know about, you know? So I think that that's one of the great things about living here. Well, cool. Well, Brian, thank you very much for, um, for being on today. And, uh, any last words to, to part with the, uh, the viewers before, before we end this? Uh, Texas barbecue is best barbecue. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, any recommended spots if people are going to Texas? Oh, like, 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 <laughs> 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 Do you, one, I mean like, yeah, just, you just, when you go to Texas, eat barbecue. Please eat, you know. Yeah. Eat, eat as much as you can, please. <laughs> I, I will vouch for that. Yes, yes, please, yes, yes. Please eat barbecue in Texas. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much, and uh, we'll we'll include all the um, the links to uh, the books and and your website and uh, and to uh, Kotaku in the show notes. And um, we we appreciate you being here. Yeah. So. Thank you. <laughs>